But really, my goal is to connect them with Syriac. Because this is, if we lose Syriac, we lose our identity. I grew up in a very uncomplicated Assyrian world. I was surrounded by people who referred to themselves as Assyrian, I knew myself as an Assyrian, I attended mass in the Assyrian language, and if someone asked me the language I spoke, I'd say Assyrian. I knew Assyrian had a connection to Aramaic, but I couldn't explain to you how the language evolved. As I grew up, I began to hear other terms thrown around, all synonymous with Assyrian, but not Assyrian in name. Terms like Syriac, to refer to language, sometimes to a people, to an ecclesial sect. It only began to complicate my understanding of who I was, who we were. I started to wonder if I should go back to my comfortable bubble when everything was much easier, but then I realized that isn't how we evolve. We're responsible for understanding ourselves in all of our complexities and for digging further to seek the truth. Hello everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Adessa, and for this episode 134, I had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Amir Harak about some of these questions. Dr. Harak is currently the professor of Aramaic and Syriac at the University of Toronto in Canada, and the president of the Canadian Society for Syriac Studies. He completed his Bachelor of Arts in Classical, Ancient Mediterranean, and Near Eastern Studies in Archaeology, at the Université Catholique de Louvain in Belgium. His master's in Assyriology and a PhD in Assyriology and Aramaic Studies at the University of Toronto. In this episode, we discuss the importance of Syriac, Syriac Christianity, and the distinctions between Aramaic, Syriac, Neo-Aramaic, and Assyrian. If you're a lover of language, history, and religion, this episode is for you. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847 982 and without further ado, here is Dr. Amir Harak. Dr. Harak, something that I wanted to open up with was it's it's very evident within your background, with your schooling, that you have had an interest within Near East studies, Syriac, Aramaic. How old were you when you began to develop an interest within these areas? Well, I was born in Nineveh. Okay. <laughs> you know, current day Mosul. And so at a very early age, I was exposed to Assyrian antiquities because, you know, you cross the Tigris and then you are in Nineveh. <laughs> yeah. And so that was, that was very impressive from childhood. At the age of 12, I went to a seminary in Mosul that was managed by French Dominican fathers. Mm. The seminary was founded in the 19th century, so it was an older school. And so I did uh, my secondary school there, 
and then two years of classical philosophy and three years of theology. In 1973, the Iraqi government then closed the school, the seminary. Why was that? Oh, um, it was because it's a political move, actually, because there were many Shiites schools in the south of Iraq. Usually, students wouldn't be taken for military service. And so anyone who, who wouldn't want to be in the army would go to those religious Shiite schools. You are talking about probably hundreds and thousands of people. So that is probably a loss to the military service. And so those schools were nationalized. And of course, the seminary, although it is a Christian, and students were indeed exempted of doing military service, so they closed it. Once they closed it, they put the Dominican fathers, the French Dominican fathers, out of the country. So everything was dismantled. The truth is that when I was in the seminary, I was extremely interested in studies, in academic studies. And of course, more I grew up, more I was wondering who are those people behind the palace of Sennacherib, for example. Because I used to see Assyrian reliefs, kineiform, and so on. So I didn't do my last and fourth year of theology, uh, so I wasn't ordained a priest. After uh, military service, I went in 1977 to, to Belgium to do studies at the Catholic University of Louvain, which was founded in the 14th century. So it was a very old institution. So there I did archaeology and art history. How old were you? I was uh, 25. So the uh, because it is archaeology, of course, and art history, I had to write uh, a memoir, uh, like a dissertation, and it was on the winged bulls of the Assyrians. So that was really going in depth into the Assyrian culture. Of course, beside doing archaeology and art history, I exploited my studies in the seminary. So I also did church history as well as Semitic languages. So Hebrew, Aramaic, and of course Syriac. Syriac was part and parcel of the curriculum in the seminary. So that was uh, from 77 to 80. And in 80, I decided to expand my linguistic background. You know, French is very useful to do studies, but I thought, you know, English is more important. So I applied to several universities, including the University of Toronto. The reason why I came to Canada is because I was uh, given a scholarship at the master's degree level. Usually they don't give scholarship for master's students, but I got it somehow. So in, at the master's, I studied of course, Akkadian, both uh, dialects, Babylonian and Assyrian, and in addition to Aramaic, ancient Aramaic, and uh, a course on the ancient Near East. So th that was for one year. I applied to do the PhD in the department, and 
the, my PhD was actually in Assyriology, the ancient Assyrians. Usually, the PhD program lasts for five years minimum. I managed to complete it in four and a half years. And my dissertation on the Assyrians between the 14th century BC to 1250 BC. Okay. So that is, we call that the Middle Assyrian period. Now, when you when you left to do your studies in Belgium, at that point, did you know that you were going to be leaving Iraq from there on indefinitely? Or that is a good question because you know when you leave to to Europe, you don't think about going back or remaining. It, you know, I did uh, three degrees at the same time. I was just absorbed by studies. But in 1980, as everyone knows, the Iran-Iraq war started. And so I got messages from my family, don't ever come back, oh, wow. you know, because people would be taken to military service no matter how. So did you get and, a chance to ever say goodbye to the people there formally? Well, my family was happy that I was out of the country, you know, but then... Uh, studies that's the that is i was driven by digging into our culture more and more so yeah i spent six years in canada to get the phd and even before defending my thesis which was entitled assyria and hanigalbat hanigalbat was the name of northern syria i modified a little bit the introduction and the conclusion I sent the manuscripts to Germany, and it was published as a book. Mm. Uh, that was my first ever book. And was it written in English? It was in English, yeah. that's right. And somehow, I used a method that wasn't really the method used by scholars at that time, is that, okay, in Assyrian, we have the royal inscriptions of Assyrian rulers, from the Middle Assyrian period, so 1400 BC until the end of Assyria. But these inscriptions, you know, kings sometimes boasted about their achievements and so on, especially military and uh, administration. So to check these royal inscriptions, I used business documents. These business documents came essentially from northern Syria because the Assyrians established administrative centers going up to the Euphrates, basically. And so there were newly discovered business documents. So a business documents, you have transactions, but they are dated also. Since the dates are based on personal names, so you have a new king, his name comes the first, and then every single year in the reign is named after administrators, big administrators. So that was really quite interesting because sometimes you have an inscription of uh, an Assyrian ruler who lived in the 1300 years BC. He claims he went to a certain place in northern Syria. How can you verify that he went? It's not possible. But then I found in record 
business records that one of the administrators of that particular king was the evidence that indeed he went to northern Syria. So these kind of uh, pieces of evidence are very important for history. And were these evidence on clay tablets? Absolutely, okay. yes. In the Middle Assyrian dialect, there is a slight difference between the Middle Assyrian and Neo-Assyrian. Neo-Assyrian is Assyria from roughly 1000 to the, to the demise of the Assyrian Empire. So, and also the script a bit modified, you know, script is calligraphy, right? So it was a bit uh, different. I see. As a professor of Aramaic and Syriac, I think people get confused even amongst ourselves of, first of all, what language do we speak? But that's another question. Separate from that is what is the difference between, let's say, Aramaic versus Syriac? Yeah, a good question, because Syriac is Aramaic, right? Mm -hmm. So there is there is very close relationship. These are dialects, Syriac or Jewish Aramaic or the Aramaic of Hatra. Hatra was a caravan city in northern Mesopotamia. Or there are inscriptions of Assyrians in Ashur. These are the survivors of ancient Assyrians until the year roughly 250 AD. So there is a continuity. So that is, that is the, uh, the relation between Lushanad Eta, that is the modern Assyrian, and Aramaic. It's very, very much connected. And something that I remember learning, and I don't know if it's true or not, is someone saying that what we speak today is actually more closely connected to Akkadian than it is Aramaic. Like the words that we derive from Aramaic and what we speak today are not as closely tied together as they are with, uh, with Akkadian. Is that true? You know, uh, there are, uh, these are Semitic languages. Yeah. So Akkadian, Hebrew, Aramaic with the dialects, Arabic. These are, we call them Semitic languages in scholarship. And they are interconnected, which means that there are grammatical rules that are common. To these languages. But because, you know, the Middle East is not a, sh uh, a small place, so you have languages. So Akkadian is the oldest attested language ever, mm. <laughs> you know, from the end of the second or the third millennium mm. until, until really the, dem until the demise of the Neo-Babylonian period. After that, of course, the Persians came to historical scene. So there are common features between these Semitic languages. Now, what is the relation of modern Assyrian with, with ancient Assyrian? I think this is a, a very important issue. First, I want to talk a little bit about is modern Assyrian Assyrian? That is, we hear from a, ver a variety of sources, no, it is not Assyrian. Or the Assyrians, yes, it is Assyrian. Right. You know, um, about the 5th century BCE, when Aramaic became the language of uh, diplomacy as well as literature, the lingua franca of uh, the ancient Near East, later on, Aramaic was called Assyrian, it was called Aramaic, 
it was called uh, Babylonian uh, and, and, and so on. So in a way, it is legitim legitimate, academically speaking, to call modern Aramaic among the Assyrians, Assyrian, as long as it is proven by tradition. Now, of course, Aramaic was became the language of Mesopotamia as well as Syria and as far as Egypt, because Aramaic became the, the language of Mesopotamia. You know, for example, in Assyria, Assyria was quite uh, influenced by Aramaic in such a way that the wife of Sennacherib had two names, one Assyrian and one Aramaic, and the two names mean the same. So her name in Assyrian was Zakutu, and in Aramaic, her name is Nakia. So it means pure, <laughs> something like that. So you can see if the wife of Sennacherib had two names, you can see how Aramaic influenced ancient Assyrian. Ancient Assyrian is a dialect of Akkadian. So there was somehow like an intermarriage between ancient Assyrian and ancient Babylonian and Aramaic. So there are uh, lots of uh, Akkadian or Assyrian terminology in Aramaic. At the University of Toronto, I teach usually Biblical Aramaic. So the book of Ezra and the book of Daniel, there are some chapters written in Aramaic. If you read those Aramaic texts, you will see that administrative terminology as well as building terminology is essentially Assyrian, ancient Assyrian. So do you see how this terminology is not one term or two terms, it is really the administration as well as building. Of course, because the book of Ezra was written under the Persian Empire, so there are some Persian specific administrative text as well as other, other words. But it is really striking that after the demise of Assyria and Babylonia, you see so many administrative business terms in Aramaic. So you can call it intermarriage, mm -hmm. you can call it, you know, association and so on. These terms continued, you know, throughout two millennia. Now, as a modern day Assyrian, as myself, Adessa, if I were to tell somebody, they ask, oh, what language do you speak? What is the proper terminology that I would use? Would I say I speak Assyrian, I speak Syriac, I speak Aramaic, uh, I speak Neo-Aramaic? What would be the, <laughs> I guess, the proper kind of terminology? I think the academic way, it's Neo-Aramaic. Mm -hmm. But Neo-Aramaic, although Neo, it means New Aramaic, but it's not new at all. In fact, Neo-Aramaic is older than Syriac being the literary language of Aramaic, which became really Lishanad Eida. So what, see, is, what is spoken, like the liturgy that is spoken in chur uh, liturgy. church? The liturgy, liturgy yeah. is entirely in literary dialect, literary form. This is what I teach also at the University of Toronto, you know. Even, even literary texts contain lots of ancient Assyrian or ancient Akkadian, but really Assyria is, had a major impact on Aramaic, even more than Neo-Babylonian. 
Neo-Babylonian, it's the time of Nebuchadnezzar. They spoke, of course, Aramaic and Akkadian became the language of literature and so on. So if you say that you are speaking a dialect of Aramaic, we'd be fine. And so, so just to clarify, so if I say I'm speaking Syriac, that that is not technically correct. No, we call Syriac the literary language, literary dialect of Aramaic. And you know what? I mean, it is an ancient dialect. I told you that I teach uh, biblical Aramaic every year. So the Aramaic of Ezra and Daniel, basically between the fourth and the middle of the second century is BC. Syriac is rooted in that particular dialect. We call it Imperial Aramaic. Why Imperial? Because the Persians, when they came to, to the political scene, they did not use Persian in administration and, you know, contact with people. They used Aramaic. So Aramaic became Imperial dialect. And amazingly, you know, it spread out beautifully in the culture of the ancient Near East because it spread out in Egypt. You know, Egypt is spoke uh, Egyptian. Coptic is the latest dialect of ancient Egyptian. But then Aramaic became quite impressive because there are so many documents written in Aramaic that came from Egypt. Going with the terminology of Neo-Aramaic that is um, spoken, where do you see the language going in 25 years, let's say 50 years, 100 years? Yeah, I think if you survey what happened in the Middle East and during the last 10 years, you would, you would figure out how Neo-Aramaic is going to disappear sooner or later. I think sooner rather, rather than later, because in 2014, the Islamic State invaded Mosul and the plain of Nineveh. In the plain of Nineveh, you have big villages or towns that spoke Aramaic for 3,000 years. Before 2014, babies in these places spoke Aramaic as a mother tongue. This is really impressive someone who teaches uh, Aramaic because sometimes I teach also old Aramaic. So these are texts dated from roughly 1000 to 600 BC. And so you see how Neo-Aramaic is really not Neo. <laughs> it is an ancient dialect of Aramaic spoken dialect. That has relations with old Aramaic. I believe that what we call Neo Aramaic is a very ancient dialect, spoken dialect. And so the plain of Nineveh, it's, um, it is a contested land nowadays. Iran wants to have control of that through the uh, tribes called Shebek in the area because this is somehow uh, the road towards Syria. And I think the blow that the Islamic State did is that it obliterated those towns and villages that spoke Aramaic. And according to the news, and I've been in, in Iraq as late as 
two years ago, not too many Christians, Aramaic speaking Christians, returned, for example, to Tel Kepi or to Bartale or to Karamles or to Karakosh and, and, and so on. When you have a minority that becomes more minority, eventually they will disappear. Now, is the understanding that those that it's inevitable that as they uh, as they leave their homeland that and they go out into the diaspora that it is less promising that there can be a continuation of the language. That's right. That's right. You know, and the diaspora. I mean, the first de- generation maybe would endeavor to speak at home Aramaic. Maybe the second generation, but what about the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth? We have a good example of how everyone is involved in a melting pot of languages. The Germans, the Germans are very nationalist. You have the Germans who came like 80 years ago, they don't speak German. They speak English and they consider themselves Americans. There is little, really, I mean, there are a few, of course, that connect themselves with Germany, and all that remain is the family names. The family names, of course, can change too. So what about us, which are a variety of minorities? How are we going to survive? I mean, I I have contacts with variety of people in in Toronto and in the greater area. The new generations, they don't speak Aramaic because they are, they go to English schools and they have to study everything in English. And so when they go home, they speak English with their parents who don't speak enough English. <laughs> so there is already a conflict nowadays. What about the future generations. It's very sad. It's very, very sad. Let me just add something. We are failing our culture. We are also responsible. We are so much divided. We don't have schools. I mean, the Armenians, they have, they consider themselves Armenians within American and Canadian and European cultures and so on. They remain Armenians. They have schools, and the schools are very important to perpetuate, to continue with our cultures. We don't have schools. We are so much divided, pitifully divided, into Assyrian, Chaldean, Syriac, Arameans, and into so many churches. How can, how, how can you secure a language, even, even in the liturgy? Back home, of course, before... 2014, the festivities, liturgical festivities, the mass, baptism, and so on, was conducted essentially in Syriac, and sometimes Syriac was also rendered into Neo-Aramaic. But we are still in the Aramaic ambience, right? This disappeared. You know, I'm a deacon, so I go to... For which denomination? Syriac Catholic. I go to our church, it is entirely in Arabic. During the past 10 years or so, I tried somehow to maintain our Syriac language because our liturgy, everything in Syriac. 
And so I created prayer books for festivities in Syriac, rendered also in Arabic. It's Garshuni Arabic because our people don't speak anything else. What is Garshuni? Garshuni is um, Syriac, for example, written in English letters. Ah, okay, okay. Or Arabic letters. Okay. So like phonetically written? Phonetically, that's right. But phonetically, it's not the ideal because, you know, there are vowels in language that cannot be... Uh, in, in Syriac, we have the O vowel. It is not in Arabic. We have the A vowel. It is not there. And then I translated the uh, some selected Syriac hymns and so on into English. Then I put everything in PowerPoint. So when we celebrate, for example, soon we are going to celebrate Dimcha. Um, of course, now with the COVID, no one is in the church, mm -hmm. but the videos are conveyed to our members. They don't know Syriac. So the Syriac is translated into Arabic. And when there is already an Arabic text, I translated those into English so that in PowerPoint, they can somehow connect. But really, my goal is to connect them with Syriac. Because this is, if we lose Syriac, we lose our identity. I mean, this, this is not, <laughs> this is a language that dates 3,000 years. It's, it's very sad that if we lose our language. Yeah, I think that that's something that many of the Syriac Christian denominations are tackle with. I think it's, it's one of the more um, kind of controversial issues of a matter of, do you keep a language in the church that people may not understand, but it's important to maintain because if it's not spoken there, then where is it spoken? And then the other side of it being that, well, no one understands what you're saying. Isn't it more important that people are able to understand the message that's being said in the language that makes most sense to them? And there's arguments for both sides. And I think different churches have decided to go with different realms. And so I, I, I completely see where you're coming from in terms of that. And I think it is something that a lot of uh, churches are going to continue to tackle with in terms of moving forward and what is spoken in the in the church. For example, and I, I I'm a member of the Church of the East, and you know the liturgy is, is done in Syriac, but I have my book in front of me, and I'm try I'm kind of going along with it. There's some parts to it where I understand it in its Syriac form, but there's other parts that I have no idea what's being said, so I have to look at the English part to then understand it. But it's an investment of your time and curiosity to learn, to want to understand what word in Syriac translates to it in English so that when it's spoken in, in Syriac, I can understand it on its own, as opposed to relying on English as my crutch to kind of get me through Raza. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's good to do that. You know, there are people who, who don't even pay attention to, to the ancient language. I go back to, to what I said earlier. We need schools where Syriac is part of the curriculum. This is the only way we survive. Otherwise, we are, we are going to disappear. I mean, there will be some communities, of course. There is another issue, of course, Assyrians, Chaldeans versus Syri Syriac Catholic and so on. From church denomination perspective? <laughs> 
that, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there is so far so good. There is somehow um, awareness among the Assyrians and some of the Chaldeans that we have to preserve our language, no matter how. Mm -hmm. The Catholic side diluted that drive. Everything is done in Arabic and nowadays, of course, in English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that is, that is, we are going nowhere. Mm -hmm. If we are going to lose our language, we are going to disappear. Uh, I'm convinced of that. So I don't know. I think, I think the leaders of our communities, they can unite only when it comes to the language. And they can unite when, at one point, they establish schools. You know, in America and in Canada, you can open schools, you can appoint teachers and so on, as long as these schools are subjected to the Ministry of Education. That's fine. You know, you can have our people te teaching chemistry, teaching uh, mathematics and so on, but there would be some who would teach classical Syriac. And, you know, young people, for them, it's easy to learn a language rather than, you know, someone who is 30 or 40 becomes more difficult. So they grow up with the language. When are we going to do that? Yeah. That's, that is a major question. And I think our leaders are failing us. They are failing us and they, they are failing the language. There are, in Toronto, Islamic schools, and they are recognized by the Ministry of Education. Why we cannot do that? You know, in big cities, such as Chicago, Detroit, Toronto, Montreal, and other cities, it needs, of course, money. Money can be generated. I mean, if we lose our language, we lose the language, the culture, and... What else? The money. What do we do with the money? I think that's that's very important. And since these schools will be private, so maybe the families can also contribute to to the running of the schools, salaries and so on. It's good. I mean, I, I think for many listeners that are, are hearing this, I think you're going to turn on a light bulb in their head. If they're involved with an organization, maybe shifting their priority, or if there isn't an organization whose focus is this to potentially start and have this be one of the goals within the community. Where else is a Syriac and Aramaic taught at the university level? How does one set it up at a university? Does the university display an interest or um, place value on this and then look for a position? Or how exactly does, does it work logistically? Well, Syriac is minimum 1,500 years of uh, literary production. Mm -hmm. You know, you have everything in Syriac. You have, uh, of course, religious text. You have canon law. You have chemistry in Syriac, historical text, uh, philosophical text, and the Syriac is not a tiny dialect forgotten by by people. It is it is there, and Syriac is important also because it does not relate only with antiquity. It is very important for Arabic, for Islamic Arabic, if you want. Mm -hmm. For Persian, 
for Armenia because you know uh, northern uh, eastern Turkey was inhabited by Armenians and Syriac and there are there are interaction there so who decide Syriac at universities at the University of Toronto I think in 2007, we have the North American Syriac Studies Symposium in Toronto. And I decided to dig a little bit about Syriac as a, as a discipline at the University of Toronto. And I discovered at that time that it was taught for 150 years, continually. You know, there aren't really many departments of Middle Eastern Studies. And this is another matter. Some of the languages call them exotic or foreign languages, are not necessarily what the universities want to teach. Mm. But I give you an example from the University of Toronto. Spanish, Portuguese are taught in departments, but it is the, the government of Spain and the government of Portugal that sponsor mm. these languages. Okay. Who is going to sponsor Syriac? Right. So you're saying that the funding or majority of the funding for these languages that are taught at universities come from their home country. Then that's, that's where they're able to get the funding to be able to set up a department or a chair or anything at a university. That's right. For myself, I was lucky that, you know, Syriac has been taught for 150 years. And then, you now know, 150 they, uh... years at the University of Toronto? Yes. Oh, that's a very when the University of Toronto was founded mm -hmm. and there is every year mm -hmm. so there is appreciation of syriac of course for probably more than a hundred years syriac was because syriac is there is a version of the bible in syriac so it was somehow geared toward biblical studies mm -hmm. i remember like i have been here I have been teaching Syriac for 30 years. There was a professor of Septuagint. So Septuagint is the Greek version of the Bible. He told me at the time, don't deal with the Bible. In Syriac, there are many disciplines. True, I mean, I did theology, but I'm not really a theologian, and I'm not also a Biblist. I deal with the Bible, of course, but... So I took another, another aspect of Syriac, especially chronography, chronicles. We have chronicles from the 6th century down to the end of the 14th century. And some of the chronicles are very extensive. So sometimes Syriac fill gaps. I remember one year I participated in a conference in Paris about Syriac studies and so on. There was a French professor who teaches in the U.S. He showed a slide about how Syriac filled the gap in the Islamic history. In the Islamic history, from the birth of Islam, you have only the Quran. The Quran is a religious text. It is not historical. There is some history but it is essentially a religious text. From the beginning of the 7th century until the 9th century, there is nothing in Arabic or in Islamic. Maybe they are aware and they disappeared. Mm -hmm. What fills the gap? It's Syriac. Mm -hmm. 
I translated a chronicle dated to 775, written by a Syrian Orthodox monk in northern Syria. And I translated the latter part, so the, the latter half. Because what was the name it, of the monk? Isho. Okay. So this monk, the latter part of his chronicle covers the Umayyad period and the early Abbasid period. He says things that you cannot find even in later Islamic history, like Tabari dates to the 9th century, but 9th century, there are three centuries since the birth of Islam. So that history has to be taken critically because not everything is said in the 9th century about Islam is correct, right? You can say the same thing about uh, Syriac, about uh, other languages. So Syriac fills the gap of three centuries of Islamic history. And this chronicle, which I called Chronicle of Zuknin, Zuknin was the name of the monastery. He says things that nowhere you can find in terms of information, military as well as political. And because the majority of chronicles come from the Syriac Orthodox side, and the Syriac Orthodox side is adjacent to the far frontiers of the Abbasid period. They did not reach Turkey, for example. And so the reports of those chronicles are crucial because they cover a region that was not Islamic, that was basically at that time Byzantine, and it was a buffer zone. <laughs> Who would report about a buffer zone? You have plenty of information about, about that region. As you were mentioning earlier in 2014 with the destruction, damage that ISIS had caused in Iraq, they had also caused a severe damage of Syriac churches or traditions. And I wanted to ask you, what does the destruction and loss mean for Christianity as a whole? Tremendous. We have church architecture that barely changed I would say from the 6th century down to the 19th century. So there is history. When a church is destroyed, history is destroyed. I, I have a book that will come out hopefully next year about art and architecture of churches in Iraq where I'm showing how this architecture is really ancient. And I'm saying the 6th century because, you know, I don't have, uh, we don't have 6th century churches. But I'm basing my calculations on early mentions of church architecture prior to the 6th century. For example, St. Ephraim, Mar Aprem, mm -hmm. he mentions something. But more importantly, Narsai. Narsai is part of the, of the heritage of the East Syriac Church and the Chaldean Church. Narsai, in his uh, hymns, he mentions architectural part of the church. And more so, another, uh, Narsai died in 502. 
So beginning of the 6th century. Another uh, major author is Jacob of Sarug, who died in 521. He wrote many, many hymns. And one hymn called The Partaking of the Holy Mysteries. So he mentions step by step how the liturgy of the Mass was celebrated before he died. And probably it was celebrated during the 5th century, maybe during the 4th century, because you don't celebrate a liturgy just like that. It ha the liturgy has a historical background. And so when he describes the, lit the, the liturgy, he describes at the same time the architecture of the liturgy, because the liturgy is set in an architectural frame. So you have, you know, church architecture is very ancient. And when it is destroyed, what can you say? Our part of history is destroyed. Yeah. It's very sad. It is very sad. You had mentioned that you're writing a book about the art and architecture of the churches in Iraq. What, if you could just say maybe a couple of things of what were some kind of common or unique features amongst the churches in Iraq that you saw? Well, a common feature, which is really, really ancient, is the division of the church into two parts. So you have the sanctuary, and then the sanctuary is behind a wall, big wall, a wall with three gates. The central one is the biggest, the bigger one. And this part of the sanctuary represents heaven. And that's why until recently, really, I mean, 19, even 19th century churches, they have solid gates into the sanctuary. Um, one church in, uh, in Mosul, it is dedicated to the Virgin Mary. It was renovated in 1744. It was destroyed by an Iranian general who invaded that region. In that particular church, and there are other churches, of course, you have these wooden gates strengthened by iron bars. And they are opened only during the mass. The latter part, the other part of the church is the nave. It represents the nave. The nave is the, the, the church other than the sanctuary. This is where people sit, of course, and attend the, the mass. This nave represents earth. And so there is a theological concept. It is only through the sacrifice of Christ, the bloodless sacrifice of Christ in the liturgy, that the door is open for the people on earth to connect with heaven. This is, I'm telling you, uh, Narsai talks about it. <laughs> Narsai, who died in 502. So that's... Uh, is talking about this theology that dates to the fourth, maybe third century, and, and, and so on. So that is a major, a major feature in the in the church. 
And so the sanctuary is usually divided into three parts. The first, the central part, is where the liturgy of the Mass is celebrated. The two other parts, one the, the, to, the, to the right side is the baptistry. This is where you had a baptismal uh, font there and people would, would baptize their babies inside. It is interesting about this detail because sometimes I used to go to the East Syriac Church, Church of the East, whose bishop, Mara Manuel, did his PhD in my department. Mm -hmm. So I attended some baptismal celebration there. Of course, you cannot have many people in, inside that baptistry. So they put the font at the front of the, of the room, which is really interesting because it is connected with the room. The room to the, to the left, it is called the, um, the room of the deacons. Mm -hmm. In this ancient church of Mosul, uh, dedicated to the Virgin Mary, in that particular room, you have two levels. So you go up. This is where they used to bake bread for the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And below, of course, it is where the deacons and subdeacons put on the liturgical clothes and so on. That is very ancient. You know, nowadays, of course, churches forgot about about that. But I think the most important things is that it is only through the sacrifice of Christ that heaven is open to the earth. That is uh, very interesting about a feature. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier the value of preserving Syriac. I'm curious to know, how, how does Syriac Christianity fit into the body of Christianity as a whole? Like, what would, what would one's argument be in terms of the value of preserving Syriac Christianity and, and how that fits, how Syriac Christianity specifically fits into the body of Christianity as a whole? You know, your questions reminds me uh, about an article that Dr. Sebastian Brock of Oxford wrote. Generally, in Europe and America, the concept was that the, that the church is like two langs, Eastern and Western. And the Eastern lang for those, for that, in that concept is, of course, Greek and Russian and so on. So where is Syriac? <laughs> and Sebastian Brock, who is uh, really a major scholar nowadays, he wrote an article adding a third lang, which is Syriac. Syriac is comparable, if really even more comparable, than the Byzantine side of Christianity. I mean, you have uh, in Syriac the earliest literature. I'll give you an example. There are hymns called the Odes of Solomon. These are lyrical hymns. We understand everything, but there are some one or two hymns are difficult to, to, uh, to understand, but I think they are essentially liturgical. The Odes of Solomon were written about 150. The year 150? That's right. 
150, and they have affinities with the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written according to scholarship about the year 90. So mere 60 years between the Gospel of John and then the Oath of Solomon. Next, you have the Acts of Thomas, St. Thomas, who preached Christianity in India. They were written about the year 250, so 100 years after the Oath of Solomon. You know, the, the Acts of Thomas gives us the earliest attestation of performing the Eucharist ever. Not even in Greek, not even in, in Latin. Moreover, it gives us also the first attestation ever of performing baptism. And the Acts of Thomas, they connect baptism with the Eucharist. There is no baptism without the Eucharist, and there is no Eucharist with, without baptism. So they are connected. And this was all written in Syriac? These are written in Syriac. And then you have, of course, Ephraim, Mar-Aprem. Mar-Aprem, who died in 373, is extremely important because he was aware of the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea 313, but he was before the other councils, Chalcedony and Ephesus and so on. So he is common to everyone because what divided Christianity is those later councils. Ephraim the Syrian, he is extremely important because in his hymns, and he has many hymns, he believed that we cannot put divinity under the microscope to see how it is. It means that when he touches the incarnation, the resurrection, anything divine, he avoids to deal with those subjects, but he is taken up by those subjects and he admires them and he loves them. And then he touches, of course, other, other mundane subjects. He consults agricultural fields, the cosmos, and so on, he find God in everywhere. He was also an ecologist, really, the first ecologist, because he believed that to undermine ecology is to undermine the creation of God. Ephraim is magnificent. If those theologians of later councils imitated the concept of Ephraim, Christianity wouldn't have been divided. Because how can you, how can you analyze divinity? You cannot. You cannot. It's, it's an act of faith. But for Ephraim, it's an act of faith which he admires and which he loves. You know, the incarnation, God made man, is only true in a Christianity. Like in the Old Testament, God is far away. He is like a policeman. You know, he, he would control and so on. And Islam, there is really God. We are slaves. 
literally slaves of of Allah. Mm -hmm. Only Christianity brought divinity with the humanity. This is, of course, Ephraim. He admires that, and he um, in his poetry you can you can feel his uh, his love and admiration uh, of what Jesus had done. Mm -hmm. So, but Ephraim he died in three seventy three very close to to the sources of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So that is that is Syriac. Mm -hmm. It is really only Christianity is best represented in Syriac. But also in Greek of course you have some early Greek sources. I give you one example how Ephraim and even Narsai and even Jacob of Sarug how they conceived the liturgy, the Mass, the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. I was contacted three weeks ago by someone who is writing a book on the Eucharist, but from a theological point of view. Mm -hmm. Theological, um, you know, there is another term, casuistic. Do you know the term casuistic? No. You analyze the Eucharist materially. Is really the bread and blood after consecration, they change into the body and the blood of Christ. So these type of questions. Mm -hmm. Of course, these are acts of faith. Mm -hmm. I found out from the time of Ephraim and solidified by Narsai and Jacob of Sarug that the concept of the Eucharist for these people was healing. The concept of healing is already in the Acts of St. Thomas, so 250. Mm -hmm. In the Acts, he says that the Eucharist heals ailments, spiritual as well as physical. And Ephraim, Narsai, and Jacob of Sarub, they repeat this information. So, What's healing in uh, in Syriac? Do you know? Yeah. What's remedy in Syriac? Samma. Isn't samma poison? You are right. It is poison. But only in Syriac and in Jewish Aramaic, really only in Aramaic, that samma means poison, venom, and at the same time healing. And why is that? Probably in antiquity, they used the venom as a remedy. You know, if you use... Why are hospitals, drug marts, have the sign of a snake mm -hmm. around uh, mm -hmm. a stick? Mm -hmm. This comes from ancient times. But it is very interesting that in Babylonian Aramaic, which is really Jewish Aramaic, and in Syriac, the uh, the healing is uses the same term, venom <laughs> and healing. Mm -hmm. I approached this this concept not only in literature. I approached it also uh, in art. Probably, you know, um, the monastery of Marbehna. Where is that? It is not far away from Mosul. Okay. It's a major. Syriac Orthodox and then became Catholic institution. Mm -hmm. 
so you have the you have the church. Of course, you have that big wall separating the uh, the, the sanctuary with the nave. If you stand at the south gate, you will see immediately the sanctuary. So there must be a connection between the south gate and the sanctuary. But there is another thing, very fascinating. On the top of the lintel of that gate, there are two snakes intertwined by the tail. And the two heads are powering their venom into chalices. Why would you find this particular depiction in a church? You know, um, snakes and uh, powering venom is well known, you know. Even nowadays, you know, you see sometimes, you know, people uh, you can see it in Google. <laughs> so they are doing the same thing. For a theologian who is aware that Samma is healing, these two snakes are powering venom, which is also here healing. And now you understand the south gate, which looks to the sanctuary, it means the, the sacrifice of Christ in the sanctuary is healing. So it goes back to the writing of Ephraim, Narsai, and Jacob of Saruk. That's very interesting. Yeah. I'm going to send you the article. Okay. I think it will be published as a preface in the book. So it is good that the reader will understand the acts of faith and let them deal with the, uh, with the casuistic theology. Sure. Now, within the classes that you teach, what is the ratio of students in your class that have an Aramaic language background? In terms of a mother tongue, so they are Assyrian, they are studying the language. It depends, of course. I mean, if you are talking about PhD studies, doctoral studies, I would say half-half. Do you teach undergraduate courses as well? Yes. Usually, every two years, I teach a, a course on Middle Eastern Christianity. So I get some 40 students, because there is a cap in that course. So 40 students is the maximum. It depends on the rooms that are available. In that room, I would say the ratio is 30 and 10. 30? 30. No connections whatsoever. They like, you know, who are those people in the Middle East? So I go from the beginning till 214. <laughs> now, do you find many of those are major kind of background with history, theology, and that's their curiosity? Or do you find that it's just a mixed bag of people with different majors who just happen to have a, an interest? Uh, because um, the, the academic year of all students include the four-year academic year, mm-hmm. uh, academic uh, curriculum, include 20 course, twenty full-year courses. Mm-hmm. If they are in sciences, three of the 20 courses have to be in the humanities and social sciences. So in the humanities, some people go through those courses and then, oh, I'm going to take the Christians of the Middle East. Several students, they come to my class by accident. They are surprised there is such a topic, so they, yeah. 
And what are examples of other courses that you have taught, currently teach, or will teach in the in the upcoming semester or quarter? I just finished an undergraduate course on the literature, Christian literature of the Middle East. Unfortunately, you know, um, in that particular course, there are prerequisites. So the prerequisite is, for example, the ancient Near East or the Christians of the Middle East. I think that limits the number of people who want to take the course. And I have to tell the department to read of those prerequisites because, you know, it's a mission to teach about our, our culture. So these are undergraduate courses that I teach alternate years. Otherwise, every year I teach uh, Biblical Aramaic, as I told you. And then for Syriac, I have three courses alternating early text, which is uh, undergrad and graduate course. So we read uh, Acts of Thomas, maybe Odes of Solomon, Ephraim, and so on. And a variety, we have freedom to, uh, to select courses. For the graduate courses, I have historical text, so chronicles. This is, of course, my own field. And exegetical text. Exegetical text, exegesis. So analysis of the Bible, beginning with Ephraim, Nursei, Jacob of Saruk, and later authors. What are uh, some common misunderstandings that you see in the academic world when it comes to understanding uh, Aramaic and, and Syriac? Of course, there is. You know, Syriac, unfortunately, is looked at as a language worthy of seminaries, of religious departments, and so on. But Syriac is not. Of course, Syriac is the, is the language of Christianity. So it is Christian. But because it fills gaps, it fills gaps in early Christianity, as I showed you, Ode of Solomon, Acts of Thomas, Ephraim. So those obscure centuries, we have early texts. It fills gap about three centuries of early Islam. Syriac is really essential for those periods. And then Syriac is important in every century because this is how Christian authors understood political as well as seismic as well as whatever aspect of witnessed in various centuries. So this is how our forefathers understood those events. And sometimes what they say is extremely important. I'll give you one example. I mentioned that I translated part of the Chronicle of Michael of Syrian. Yeah. So, Syriac text and English, side by side. Michael of Syrian, his chronicle gives unique details about the infiltrations of the Turks into Anatolia. He also witnessed the destruction of Edessa by the Turks at the time of the Crusaders. So if Michael the Syrian gives us also information quite unique about the Crusaders, at the beginning he was open-minded. He loved these Crusaders who, once you make the sign of the cross, you are a Christian, versus the Greeks who barely considered the Christianity of our people as a Christianity. 
And why was so, that? Because of the councils of um, Ephesus and Chalcedony, the Syriac churches didn't have anything to do with those councils. But then the Greeks gave us misnomers, nicknames. So they called the Church of the East Nestorian. Mm -hmm. The Church of the East is not Nestorian. Mm -hmm. In fact, Nestorius was not even Nestorian. And then they called the West Syriac Church Jacobite. Mm -hmm. Why Jacobite? Our churches were founded by Jesus Christ, not by Nestorius, not by any Jacobite, mm -hmm. any Jacob. Mm -hmm. So do you see, these are nicknames. Mm -hmm. So to undermine those, those communities. And this lasted over the centuries. I mean, Michael the Syrian, he has still a grudge against the Greeks. But those crusaders who came to the Middle East and they captured Jerusalem, Antioch, and so on, he says at the beginning, you know, if you do the sign of the cross, they would consider you fully Christian, unlike the Greeks. <laughs> so he has, he has lots of information about, uh, about the Turks, about church, you know, church history, about uh, the crusaders and how he interacted with them, and especially uh, near the end of his chronicle, he talks about the destruction of Edessa by the Turks, because informants who were Kurds told the Turks that the general of the Crusaders, with his assistance, left the city and went to Jerusalem, so there was no protection. They invaded the city and they created lots of miseries. I know that some people still struggle with the fact or understanding that there are present-day people that still speak Aramaic. And do you find that there is a, a misunderstanding within that of people thinking that the language died and that there are no present-day speakers? Yeah, I, as I said that the 214 was a big blow. It is also sad to say that even within Eastern Christians, within our people, that there is um, a misunderstanding or maybe prejudice that, oh, those people who speak Aramaic are villagers and we in big cities who don't know anything about Surah, you know, Suraya, we are better. Mm -hmm. They are not I've better. I've definitely heard that before. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it is true. I mean, uh, why then our uh, liturgies are in Syriac and not in Arabic? It's only lately that they, they were translated. There is uh, ambiguity in the mind of some people who think that they are better than the others. This is fanaticism, the prejudice, and so on, and they know nothing about 2,000 years minimum of our culture. <laughs> they have to be instructed. So this is just common everyday people, but how about those that are in the, in academia? Does it ever come up in conversation that, you know, there's there will be a professor or somebody that is mentioning that there was uh, a people uh, or many that would speak Aramaic and, uh, and that ended after a certain time and so did those people. Therefore, there is no longer, you know, current inhabitants that speak that language. I don't think there is uh, in academia that concept. In fact, uh, you know, Neo-Aramaic became a discipline in its own right. Like in Germany, there are uh, specialists of Neo-Aramaic 
because there is also important literature a bit late there is a, a, a professor in in the UK Jeffrey uh, Khan who is yeah I mean he he won lots of research money to work on dialectal Aramaic because you know you need to document these dialects I think this is all what we can do now to document. We don't know what is our future. We don't have schools. We don't have any means of survival culturally. Okay? So the best thing to do right now, and this is really what I'm trying to do, is to document our culture. The churches are destroyed. But I have been in, in Iraq many, many times before 214. In 2.10... 2010, I published two books, two volumes on Syriac inscriptions in churches, monasteries, cemeteries, in museums, and so on. It was a project funded by Canada Council. So the first volume containing pictures, it's about 300 pages. The second volume is the edition. So my reading of the Syriac inscriptions in Syriac, English translation and commentary, so over 700 pages. So it is true that some of the inscriptions, I could see, you know, in uh, in the internet that some of the inscriptions in Mosul were broken and they were, were thrown in, in garbage. I could rea realize I, I photographed those inscriptions in situ, in the site. So... We need to document at the time being. Mm -hmm. But this is how many people are doing this? Mm -hmm. Not too many people. I go back to, again, the schooling. That is very, that, that is very important. If we are going to survive is we have to open schools in big cities where people can learn Syriac as well as, you know, chemistry, math, and all other they can compete even with, with other uh, private schools. But this is important. I think it is very important because maybe Neo-Aramaic will continue in some households, but the, the classical language, not too many people know the language. Even the Shamashi and so on, they read, but they don't understand. But we need people who understand this classical language. This can only be done through schooling. A few years ago, I published a, a catalog of uh, Syriac and Gershuni manuscripts. When I was working on the uh, inscriptions of Iraq, the late Dr. Donny George told me that there are some manuscripts belonging to the Iraq Museum and they were stored in a center in Baghdad. And he said, if you get the information, the permission, you can work on that. I got the permission from the Department of Antiquities and Heritage, and I worked on, there are something like 43 manuscripts. 25 of them come from Eastern Turkey, from Assyrian churches. This is the largest known collection of manuscripts coming from there. So they are liturgical, yes, and they repeat so many liturgical texts, but then there are colophons. A colophon 
is a text that is written by the scribe. Sometimes the colophon is one page, sometimes three pages, sometimes four pages and more. So they are primary sources. The scribe mentioned his name, the bishop, and so on. Sometimes they mentioned historical facts. So the, these are very important. But they are written in classical Syriac. We need people who are able to read this text, translate them, and make known things that are unknown by our people mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. One of the manuscripts, the Shamasha was sitting copying a manuscript, and the bishop was beside him, helping him to read certain texts and so on. And those copyists, they were really learned people, even if they are in a village. One of them, in his colophon, he mentioned a, a longish text full of Gracisms, Greek terms, in rhyme, of course. When I tried to analyze those, one or two, I didn't know the terms. I asked scholars, they wouldn't know. How would this Shamasha, sitting in a village in Chari or uh, uh, those regions, how he preserved this knowledge of Greek terms, some of which are unknown to us, but he was able to write his poem using those terms. There are things, you know, um, that are really important portraying various aspects of our culture. Now, um, the last question, which we always like to ask each guest on the podcast, if you have one final thing to say to our listeners. Stay attached to our culture and mostly the language. I think this is, uh, this is very important and contribute to, to support these studies, this, uh, this continuation, linguistic continuation. And the young generations, they have really to specialize in these, these things. They have uh, to take courses about, about Christianity in the Middle East about learning Syriac, you know, you can, uh, as I told you, among 20 courses, four-year courses, there are three in the humanities and social sciences. Students at the university, they can take Syriac if it is offered where they are located. I think to take interest in our culture, we have immense documents written in classical Syriac and you have really people you, which you can count with, with your hand to, to, to read, to deal with these courses. We need more, especially among the young generations, because, you know, we don't live eternally. So, and there are only people from our own culture who would understand certain aspects that Europeans don't are not able to understand because we come from uh, from that culture. And if they cannot find jobs in Syriac, wherever they are, I think the wealthy among our people, they have to start to think about funding, co-funding, because, you know, you don't fund a position entirely. It is usually the university would contribute and then the, the funding people. 
Which you've seen that most recently in uh, at UC Berkeley for a position there. But it is funded by one wealthy individual who wanted to create it on behalf of the memory of her late father. Yeah, that is very good. You know, it's the first step. But I think, I think uh, you know, neo-Aramaic is very important yeah. because that's uh, research in, uh, in our culture is, of course... Uh, it's a great value. But I think some of the wealthy people of ours, mm-hmm. they have found positions in classical Syriac. I hope you learned something new in this episode and that it either challenged you or increased your curiosity to want to learn more. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.